Hello, this is Jeremy Bean from the Reasonable Doubts podcast. Unfortunately, the Doubtcasters have not been able to release a podcast for the past couple of weeks due to many different reasons that I will not bore you with here. But on October 20th, we'll be back with episode 55, which takes a look at Darwin's views on race, amongst other subjects. In the meantime, I thought RD listeners might enjoy the following bits of extra material. The first is an interview with Reasonable Doubt's co-host, Luke Galen. A couple of months ago, William Crawley from the BBC show Everyday Ethics interviewed Luke about his non-religious identification survey. And we're, of course, very proud that our very own Luke Galen made it onto the BBC, so we thought we'd share that with you. After the interview is a short speech delivered by yours truly at Blasphemy Bash an event hosted by the CFI on-campus group at Grand Valley State University to celebrate Blasphemy Day. In the speech, I share some of my reservations about Blasphemy Day celebrations. I wasn't so keen on the idea at first, and what eventually changed my mind and why I now support the event. So, on behalf of the rest of the RD crew, I hope you enjoy these extras, and be sure to join us next week for a new episode of Reasonable Doubts. As always, you can email any questions or comments you have to doubtcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Hello, this is Everyday Ethics, your weekly free download from the BBC, and I'm William Crawley. Why are some people deeply religious while other people are deeply non-religious? You might think it has to do with how people evaluate the evidence for God and the various claims of religion. But an American psychologist says it could have more to do with differences in personality types. Luke Galen has been studying the personalities of today's atheists and agnostics. He's just published some surprising findings under the title Profiles of the Godless. This was a study that was designed more or less to get more specific information on the non-religious segment of the population in contrast to the religious, which previous studies have focused on. When I looked at things like uh, happiness or satisfaction with life, uh, I found that um, in contrast to a lot of the previous research which showed that there was that should be an increase with religiosity, that is, more religious people should be more satisfied and happy than less religious people, that when you include the very completely non-religious people, the confidently non-religious, that it's actually a, a curved relationship. You see that they're just as happy as the confidently religious people. That challenges a little bit some commonly held assumptions about religion producing greater happiness in people. I was rather perplexed that the a lot of the previous research had flaws because they tended to lump together people who were indifferently religious with the completely non-religious people, which if you've ever met uh, those types of people, you know that that's kind of a mistaken assumption that they're similar, that they might believe in God but can't be bothered to go to church or you know they don't think about it much. Those are very, very different people from both the highly religious and the highly non-religious. And the even. highly non-religious, the, the confidently non-religious, you're saying, have happiness levels or contentment levels comparable to the confidently religious. Yes. 
Exactly. Whereas the indifferently non-religious, those who just can't be bothered, those who just don't go to church, but they don't think about it much, they don't join associations of humanists, for example, or that kind of thing. What is their happiness level? I find somewhat different things. I did this kind of different ways, asked them about how certain they were that God exists, you know, on a scale or like what they labeled themselves, spiritual, humanist. As you know, if, if you've talked to a community of non-religious people, it's like herding cats together. They argue about labels and whether you could say that God doesn't exist or not. So it depends on the way that you measured it. But in general, those people who were in the middle of the range, not sure, those people tended to be less happy, less satisfied with life. So the conclusion that seems to come from that is those people who have a confidently held worldview, whether it's religious or not, tend to be happier. Uh, What I'm finding the more I look is that when you break it down like that into the confidently held believers on either end of the spectrum, you find that with things like various moral domains as well. Even though you don't see them as similar, atheists and highly religious people, because of their strong convictions, look similar on a lot of different behaviors. Let's come to the personality types. Just as there are lots of different kinds of religious people, there are lots of different kinds of non-religious people from those who are simply can't be bothered with religion to those who are stridently opposed to uh, a supernaturalist view of the world. Are there certain personality types connected with those different points on the spectrum of non-belief? Once you kind of break it down into different facets of personality, like most people are familiar with uh, one way of breaking it down is introversion or extroversion, how social somebody is or not. But uh, the measures that I use use what's called the big five personality, uh, that there's five different traits or ways that we differ. If you look at uh, one trait called openness to experience, or sometimes it's called intellect, bookishness, interested in abstract ideas, that was in fact the single greatest distinguishing factor. The level of interest in intellectual matters is was the single most important differentiating factor. The average in the American population, I think, is like 12, 13 percent graduate, what we would call graduate level master's and doctorate education. In in my samples, I found over 30 percent, it was 35, 40 percent in some of the samples of uh, a higher, above a university level education. So that's very out of the mainstream in being highly educated. Are atheists more likely to be male than female? Yes. And almost every survey uh, has found that uh, it's it's not even close. Uh, I think in my uh, group, what I found was about three-quarters uh, male. Any explanation for that? Everybody always asks me about that, and, and people can debate depending on their point of view whether that's uh, anything from a gender, social, the way women are raised in contrast to men to be maybe to not distinguish themselves by standing out from the mainstream. Uh, Some people have even suggested biological differences in in like risk taking. Uh, So you can take your pick as to what theory you have. But I think part of it probably is a combination of those factors. Some have even suggested that churches and religion exist to socialize, you know, stray males. I think uh, when I looked at marital status, I had a church sample that I looked at as a comparison, and I think I only found one male out of over 300 people who was unmarried. So one could argue that religion and churches is, is a social structure that socializes males into being, you know, settling down and having a family. And in addition to intellect or openness and the maleness uh, criteria, you also look at marital status and you find that atheists tend not to be married. Even though most of them are married, I think it was around a little over 50% in my sample of the church group who were married. Uh, one thing that was was different was the proportion of single never marrieds uh, and cohabiting. That was much higher than in uh, for religious people. And strangely enough, the divorce level didn't differ between my church comparison sample and my 
non-religious. But it may be, for example, that atheists don't have a good religious reason to get married. They may prefer to just live together. And uh, they tend to delay, education uh, tends to delay marriage. Right. Further condition, if I can call it that, is agreeableness or disagreeableness as a personality. The label agreeableness is somewhat misleading because when we say disagreeable makes it sound as if you're starting fights and everything. But really what it means in the personality literature is being more oriented towards people pleasing. Uh, So like I have a soft heart or I'm concerned about people's feelings and put them at ease are some of the traits. And yes, the confidently non-religious and the atheist tended to be lower on agreeableness in contrast. And that's, again, commonly found that religious people tend to be higher in that trait of agreeableness. As to why that is, I mean, you could imagine that uh, at least, you know, in a society where 90% of the people are religious, by definition, if you're not religious, you're somewhat disagreeable in that you have taken a step to stand outside the mainstream. So you're slightly, um, slightly awkward. Yeah, or, you know, if you think about the, the village atheist, that person might not necessarily be, a, you know, combative or, or, or starting fights, but uh, yes, probably does find themselves at odds with other people. The psychologist Dr. Luke Galen on the personality types of today's non-believers. And you can read his entire study entitled Profiles of the Godless on my blog. Just click on it, bbc.co.uk slash blogs slash ni. You've been listening to Everyday Ethics from the BBC with me, William Crawley. For more information, go to our website, bbc.co.uk forward slash podcast. Right. If anybody wants to come back in, sit down, stand up, whatever, we're going to get started with Jamie Bean on blasphemy and free speech. It's going to be awesome. So, welcome. Hello. Okay, awesome was uh, Dren's characterization. I don't want to have to live up to that. Um, I'm, I've actually been tasked with the serious content for tonight, so I'm like the guy who has to follow all the really funny people and not be funny. Would that be called uncomic relief or maybe just boredom? But My name is Jeremy Bean. Uh, I am one of the hosts of the Reasonable Doubts podcast and radio show, and what Reasonable Doubts is all about is taking a skeptical approach towards religion. And at first I had a lot of reservations, actually, about speaking at a Blasphemy Day event. And even though the show is very critical about religion, we've made a very careful effort not to actually do name-calling on the show, not uh, not to excessively ridicule or make offensive comments. And the reason is... It's just we want to actually reach out to people who are religious. We want to get them thinking critically and questioning things that maybe they have never questioned before. The other thing, too, is that, you know, as, as someone who is an atheist, and I am and my co-hosts are, we have a certain stereotype that we have to combat out in society of the atheist as this person who isn't really taking religion seriously, who doesn't really understand religion, who only exists to... Uh, hate God and to ridicule uh, everything that people of, of faith happen to cherish and hold close to them. So I don't like the idea of actually stepping into that stereotype and giving giving the opponents, I guess our cultural opponents of secularism, something to sneer at. 
So I had a lot of reservations about doing Blasphemy Day. And uh, and as I I was thinking about it, trying to find out, okay, well, do I really want to do this? Do we really want to be represented at Blasphemy Day? Um, there were two things that came to mind that changed my, changed my mind and made me think, yes, we, we have to support Blasphemy Day. Blasphemy Day is important. It's more than just a chance to mock religion and, and mock God. Um, those two facts were, were this. Number one, there's no clear line between blasphemy and, uh, or there's no clear line between some sort of outrageous critique of religion that's shocking and offensive and just an ordinary critique of religion. Both can be considered blasphemous. Both can be considered offensive to religious people. So what we do on Reasonable Doubts is we, we deconstruct the arguments. We look, at, we look for logical fallacies. We tend to keep it on the more intellectual end. But there are people that would still find that blasphemous any attempt to criticize their faith or to criticize God or revelation of some sort, they're going to take as blasphemy. So where do you exactly draw the line? The other fact is that my good intentions, the attitude that I I don't want to go out of my way to offend people just for the sake of offending people, that I do want to respect people and approach them with a tolerant attitude, that, those good intentions of mine are often used by the enemies of free expression. They, they prey on those sensibilities um, to, to silence us. A lot of times the enemies of free expression cannot be upfront about their intentions. If they were to just tell us, hey, look, uh, our goal is to actually police everything you think, everything you say, everything that you could write. Of course, we would tell them, you know, that we're not going to let that happen. We would never go along with them. So they've learned to speak the language of tolerance and mutual respect to us. Let me give you an example of this. In March of 2008, the, UN, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council passed a resolution called Combating Defamation of Religions. Let me read you part of that resolution. Yes, I'm going to be reading parts of UN resolutions. Yay! That's just as good as comedy. (laughs) Actually, this one is comedy. It's not very funny, but but it is a joke. Uh, Let me read one of the first statements. Very nice, tolerant, compassionate statement. The resolution urges states to provide adequate protection against acts of hatred, discrimination, intimidation, and coercion to take all possible measures to promote tolerance and respect for all religions and to complement legal systems with intellectual and moral strategies to combat religious hatred and intolerance. That sounds really good, doesn't it? That sounds like something I could get behind, right? I want to respect everybody. I don't want anybody to be the victim of hatred and intolerance. Good. All right. We'll continue on through the resolution, and we'll see more of what they actually mean by this. Later on, you get um, respect of religions and their protection from contempt is an essential element conducive for the exercise by all of the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Now, think about that for just a second. They're talking about what's essential to freedom of thought and religion, and they are saying respect of religions and their protection from contempt. What does that mean? Protection from contempt? Protection from people disliking religion, showing anger towards it? 
Is that necessary to protecting free expression? Hey, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. <laughs> this one is non-binding, but there are uh, there are actually measures going through to actually step up the enforcement and incentives for following this this very fall. Plus, that's a very American attitude too. Okay, UN resolutions don't matter to us because we have the veto on the Security Council. We can do whatever the f- we want. To other countries that are going to be asking for foreign aid, where diplomacy is going to be especially helpful to them in certain areas, they can't just f- around with what the UN tells them to do. All right, going on. They say, uh, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, thank you, and that the exercise of this right carries with it special duties and responsibilities that may therefore be subject to certain restrictions. Okay, so what are those restrictions going to be? Later on it says the prohibition, they're asking for the prohibition of the dissemination of all ideas the use of printed, audiovisual, electronic media, including the internet, or any other means to incite acts of violence, xenophobia, or related intolerance and discrimination towards Islam or any religion, specifically targeting Islam or criticism of Islam. So it starts off telling us that we have to be tolerant and respect uh, freedom of religion and expression, and then it goes on to tell us that, you know, really these countries should be curbing any sort of literature or electronic media that is going to criticize or offend some sort of religion. It ends with the special rapporteur uh, being tasked on reporting instances in which, quote, the abuse of the right of freedom of expression constitutes an act of racial or religious discrimination. Uh, They never had that task before. Before they were supposed to report on violations of freedom of expression. They weren't supposed to report on abuses of violations of freedom of expression. Okay, so the resolution passed. And if you're still thinking, okay, maybe there's a tolerant uh, agenda behind this and, and it's really a good thing, why is he criticizing this? Uh, here's the countries that voted for it, uh, felt that this was consistent with their, their values. Uh, China, Cuba, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Russia, all, all with very good human rights track records. The United States, Canada, France, Germany, and Great Britain voted against the resolution. Forty uh, human rights groups joined together to sign a, a petition against it condemning the resolution because they saw through it. They knew what it was. This was led by a 57-nation-strong organization of the Islamic Conference. This was in the wake of protests, uh, of those cartoon protests, rather the backlash against those protests, and the bombings in London and Madrid. People were being very critical of Islam. This was a backlash against this by the organization of the Islamic Conference. Um, Basically, they're trying to put a blasphemy law at the heart of the UN, in the Human Rights Council, the very council that is tasked with protecting free expression. Now, how many people here in this room, I'm guessing you guys are a little more educated on these subjects, but how many of you here heard about this on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, any of these, any of these news stations when this came out? You probably didn't because they didn't cover it. That's why I'm supporting Blasphemy Day. 
it sucks, but in this world, you have to piss people off if you want to get anybody's attention. So I'm willing to take a little bit of flack from the other side, saying, oh, what meanies you are, if it's going to bring people to focus on the current state of blasphemy laws across a nation. Now, it's, America's a pretty good place to be. Most of this, what I'm going to be talking about, applies to uh, areas of Europe, but uh, free expression in general is much more threatened than it has been in the past, uh, and especially free expression against religion, religious dissent. So th those are my reasons. Let me just briefly talk about perhaps a few more reasons why Blasphemy Day might be something we want to support. Why Blasphemy Day? Because blasphemy laws send the message that we do not have to defend our views by appealing to reason or evidence. We can just silence our critics through intimidation. In argumentation and logic, we recognize this is a fallacy. Argumentum ad, and I can never say this, argumentum ad baculum, the appeal to force. Literally, it means appeal to the stick, appeal to the club. In other words, if you don't have the better argument, you can just beat the shit out of the other guy, and maybe you can win that way. Censor them, jail them, intimidate them, make them afraid to the point where they won't criticize you in the first place, that's what an appeal to force is. And it's important to note that free people would never tolerate this in politics. Even the most offensive, outrageous thing that somebody says, yeah, it'll provoke requests for an apology. Uh, it might get somebody labeled an extremist or something like that, but we don't fine or jail people for it. Uh, the suppression of political dissent by force that's a trademark of totalitarian governments. So we don't tolerate this attitude. We don't tol uh, tolerate appeals to force in politics. But yet when it comes to religion, it's somehow different. Why is that? Well, because religious faith is a matter of conscience, right? We need to be tolerant and respectful of people's deeply held beliefs. Look, when you are dealing with those who would use the law to demand your respect... Do not expect them to offer respect in return. History has taught us otherwise. How many people have been excommunicated or worse, executed because their deeply held beliefs differed from official church dogma? How many books have been burned? How many lives have been destroyed? How many people have been jailed or beaten because their convictions were deemed blasphemous throughout history? The very concept of blasphemy itself is this fallacy. It's an appeal to force. Acknowledge our God, worship the way we say you should, because if you don't, there's a special place for you. It's not going to be very pleasant. And the point is, here in America, where we, we don't have blasphemy laws, I mean, there's an old blasphemy law on the book here in Michigan, but they, they're seldom ever enforced. But... This intimidation, this appeal to force, can cross political boundaries. We can be affected by it even when, it's, even when we don't necessarily live under blasphemy laws. Uh, this happened during those, those riots after the, the, um, what was it, the Danish newspapers published those cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad back in 2005. Only a handful of American publications, really two mainstream publications, published those cartoons. And this year, Ute Clausen's book, The Cartoons That Shook the World, being published by Yale University Press, they, Yale University Press yanked the cartoons from the, final, from the final book. 
they won't allow the cartoons to be published in a book that is about the cartoons. Um, why is this? To, to quote their representative, uh, because the republication of the cartoons runs a serious risk of instigating violence. All right. Why blasphemy? Because not only should we be allowed to criticize religion, but religion needs to be criticized. The ethicist Peter Singer said it way better than I could, so I'm just going to quote him. Religion remains a major obstacle to basic reforms that reduce unnecessary suffering. Think of issues like contraception, abortion, the status of women in society, the use of embryos for medical research, physician-assisted suicide, attitudes towards homosexuality, and the treatment of animals. In each case, somewhere in the world, religious beliefs have been a barrier to changes that would make the world more sustainable, freer, and more humane. I don't believe that we can really have a truly effective critique of religion um, just by reforming it from the inside. I, I think for societies at large, we need to be prepared to criticize the very root of religious fundamentalism. This means the authority that they put in sacred scripture, um, the idea that faith is a valid way of knowing. I know that religious skeptics are not going to suddenly make heathens of all nations, so I'm not being unrealistic, but we do have a role to play by boldly critiquing the doctrines of faith, by providing humanistic alternatives to religious morality. We can change the culture and we can pull the center further in the direction of more enlightened and free-thinking perspectives. But it's, this doesn't have to be just an atheist perspective. Why blasphemy? Because it is necessary for religious liberty, too. It's pretty safe to say not everyone in here is an atheist, although the crowd did clear out a bit, so maybe... <laughs> But everyone in here is a heretic, an infidel, or a blasphemer to some religious perspective. If you're Jewish or Muslim, you deny Jesus is the Son of God, so you're a blasphemer to Christianity. If you are a Christian, uh, then you are a blasphemer to Judaism and Islam. Uh, they, they take a lot of pride in actually being a monotheistic faith. I always find that funny. Are you a Buddhist? Then you're probably a blasphemer to all three. And in fact, if you're a Zen Buddhist, the odds are pretty high that you're an actual blasphemer to Buddhism as well. That's why I always get a kick out of the Zen folk. Who was the Buddha? Zen question. Caked on shit stick. Blasphemy is necessary for religious liberty. Uh, this past August in Pakistan, Islamabad, a rumor spread around that uh, during a Christian wedding, a copy of the Quran was defaced. They never actually found evidence of, of that, uh, but this was the rumor that was going around. Now, Pakistan has blasphemy laws uh, that prohibit desecrating the Quran and insulting the name of Muhammad. The punishment is death or life imprisonment. I don't want to over, oversell my case here, uh, this law was passed in 1986, and it's not clear that, it's, that the death penalty has ever been used in anybody who's ever been prosecuted by it, uh, at least by the government. If the government hasn't used the death penalty, that hasn't stopped Muslim clerics from insisting that people take matters into their own hands. So when this happened in August, 50 houses were burned, 100 were looted, seven Christians were murdered, the oldest being an elderly man, the youngest being a child at, uh, just at the age of six. 
Now, the Catholic Church, understandably, wants these blasphemy laws to be repealed. They view the blasphemy laws as being uh, as legitimizing this violence. Okay, well, the, the courts didn't actually sentence them, but it's on the laws that an appropriate punishment is death, so we're just going to take matters into our own hands. Even when murder isn't the result uh, of these blasphemy laws, a uh, disproportionate amount of blasphemy charges are brought up against Christians and Hamadis, a Muslim sect that's a minority. Okay, so these are not prosecuted fairly. So this is not nearly as bad as the blasphemy laws that are popping up all over Europe. They're not that extreme, but the point is, if the Catholic Church wants these blasphemy laws to be abolished, okay, which, which Catholics? Irish Catholics? How are they going to do that with a straight face when Ireland now has a blasphemy law where you can be charged 30,000, you can get a fine of $30,000 for offensive religious speech? I'm, I'm for real, yes. Uh, they, and, and in fact, the people who passed the law claimed they didn't even want to. They claimed they were required by their constitution to actually pass the law. The Irish constitution apparently requires some sort of blasphemy taboo. Are, so are you going to take Irish Catholics seriously? Who else are we going to talk to? Who else is going to condemn this? Is it going to be Denmark, Australia, Israel, the Netherlands, Austria, New Zealand, all of these... All of these nations have blasphemy laws on the books. Who is it, the nations that are uh, approving the UN defamation of religious resolution? No, they don't have any moral authority. After all, even Pakistan, the very nation in question, actually voted for that resolution. So my point is, you cannot simultaneously have religious liberty and prohibit blasphemy. You either have freedom to offend or you don't. You either have freedom to think for yourself or you don't. You either have the freedom to speak your mind or you don't. Why blasphemy? Okay, last reason. Last reason will fit well with the context of this evening. Okay, in, in the end, maybe my last reason for blasphemy is, is aesthetic value. Um, sometimes you just have to appreciate something for itself and for no other end. And blasphemy is fun. It's very humorous. And, uh, and I, I think even religious people know this. Before I became a, a heathen, I attended Grace Bible College. I was actually in their theology program. And take a guess what me and my fellow theology majors, what one of our favorite movies to get together late at night and watch was. Dogma's close, actually. I did go see Dogma with a couple of people from Grace Bible College. I was going to say Monty Python's Life of Brian. (laughs) Fucking hilarious. I I mean, it did trail off a little bit at the end when they're, you know, "Eh, always see the bright side of life. That was a a bit much. But the rest of the time, people, people were rolling. It was a favorite. So even religious people know it's fun to blasphemy. All right, so those are my reasons in support of Blasphemy Day. I'm glad that everybody came out, and I'm glad that uh, Dren and Kermit put on an incredible uh, series of events here over the past couple of days, and more power to them.
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>